is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 200, covering the week of January 6th through January 10th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, you can click on that support tab and you can help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. You can donate monthly, annually, or give a one-time gift. And you will support this podcast, our website, our conferences, all the things we're doing. We do have great plans in 2020. So if you want to be part of that, you can financially contribute. You can also click on that support tab and click the shop button. Go out and get our Abbeville Institute apparel. It's high quality embroidered stuff. So if you want a golf, uh, golf shirt or a t-shirt or a hat, golf towel, fleece jacket, it is winter. So uh, you can go out there and get that material as well. It's great stuff. You also advertise for the Institute. Welcome back. It's 2020 and uh, we're, we're very excited to be here. This is episode again, 200. Thank you for all those people that have been out there for all 200 episodes. I mean, it's it's hard to believe, you know, when I started doing this uh, four years ago now, uh, that we would you know, reach 200 episodes. But here we are, 200 episodes in, and um, it's a, it's a, just a, been a, a great time. And um, again, thank you to all those people who have listened to all 200. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, thanks for getting on board now. And of course, everything is archived. You can go back and listen to all the first episodes, my, my first foray into this on episode one, which um, wasn't as good as what I can do now. So um, I do appreciate everyone being on board. And we hope that 2020 is a fantastic year for the Institute. We hope that you have a very good, happy, and prosperous 2020. We hope you had a very Merry Christmas. And uh, we're excited to be part of what 2020 brings for the Institute. We have a lot of great plans. Uh, we have some things go going on this year that I think are going to be fantastic. I mentioned that in the last podcast of 2019. We have three conferences coming up this year. We also have some plans for some projects that I think are going to come to fruition. You're going to see some changes to uh, the website this year. So there are going to be some things that are that are going to be better, more user-friendly, and I think uh, will help us in our mission more substantially. So again, if you want to contribute to any of that, we do exist on your generous contributions alone, and they are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you're interested in helping us out, uh, that would be uh, something that you can do. Uh, look, even a dollar a month, if you want to contribute that, or you know, five dollars, just want to give us five bucks. I mean, any, everything helps. So uh, we do appreciate all the support we get. All right, so let's talk about the material for the week. Uh, we had a lot of interesting material this week. It's a um, we had some stuff that I think we'd say, well, that's that's uh, maybe a little bit behind where we are, but not necessarily. Um, you know, we we just had, of course, a major foreign policy issue with the Trump administration and um, the his efforts in Iraq and Iran. But of course, one of the big things lingering with the Trump administration is the impeachment scandal, and so impeachment is still out there, and we had a great piece on the historical part of impeachment with Jack Marcourt, our resident scholar, one of our resident scholars in Japan, uh, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, talking about uh, the ghost of impeachment past. And um, 
I like this piece because he gets into to certain parts of the impeachment process, which uh, people don't necessarily talk about when they bring up the parallels between Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump. One of the things that's never mentioned and should be mentioned all the time is how both impeachments are certainly partisan driven. I mean, look, the fact that Andrew Johnson was impeached on such flimsy evidence, which uh, one of the things was, of course, violation of the Tenure of Office Act, which the Supreme Court later declared unconstitutional. So he was, he was impeached for violating an unconstitutional law, essentially. Uh, we, have, we have two articles for impeachment against Donald Trump, which are um, not really even crimes. I mean, I, I think that uh, that's, that's certainly the case. Um, you know, obstruction of Congress, what is that? <laughs> uh, now, as I've said in my own podcast, you can make a case for impeaching Donald Trump for all kinds of reasons, but not the, not the reasons that the Democrats have used in this particular case. And of course, when you look at Andrew Johnson and what was going on there, that was certainly a partisan witch hunt. The Republican Party was behaving badly in the 1860s. They thought that Andrew Johnson was a continual block to their plans, which he was. Uh, this is the great era of Reconstruction. When I say great, not that it's good, but important. And the radical Republicans in Congress had set their agenda, and Andrew Johnson was continually against it. So they wanted to get rid of him. Uh, even though they could override any veto with a supermajority, this was a rump Congress. The executive branch was powerless to stop it. The Supreme Court essentially was powerless to stop it. And the Chief Justice, Salmon P. Chase, had made it his agenda to ensure that the Supreme Court could not stop it. In fact, he, he insisted, urged the Congress to reduce the number of Supreme Court justices by two, which they did. They removed jurisdiction for the Supreme Court over certain issues, which the Supreme Court would have to rule in, against the Congress. So we had a one-party, one-branch control of the government running roughshod over the Constitution. Now, thankfully, in this particular case, in the United States, we still have at least ostensibly some checks and balances. We don't have... Uh, the Congress, because it's just the House of Representatives being able to do what the Republicans could do in the 1860s. But even if you go into the 1990s and look at the impeachment against Bill Clinton, certainly it was a partisan move, though you could say in that particular case, at least Clinton did break a law. I mean, he committed perjury. So that was an impeachable offense. Um, but still, that was a partisan effort. I mean, every time you have impeachment, it's a partisan effort. It's, it's a political process. I think that anyone who looks at this in any other way, is fooling themselves. If you have impeachment, it's political. And the House of Representatives can impeach the president for anything they want. It doesn't mean it's going to be something that the president should be impeached for, but of course they can. So one of the things that we're looking at here in 2020, 2019, and we've mentioned it on this podcast for the last four years, we're in another phase of Reconstruction. And certainly this is part of it. Uh, the Trump administration represents something that the one half of the country of the United States looks at as dangerous, and that is, uh, at least rhetorically, a return to maybe a little more traditional America. Though, I mean, I don't think you could say much about this. The Trump administration is, is not really governed that way, but at least rhetorically, the people that are supporting Trump, these are the deplorables, these are the people that live in rural areas. The South is so much in favor of the Trump administration. So we have this belief that somehow we're going through a, another reconstruction, um, and it's, this is certainly part of it. I mean, to have the Congress go out, to have the, 
House representatives go out and impeach the president. I mean, it's clear 150 years on, uh, which is almost to the year. I mean, right, you know, Andrew Johnson was impeached in 1868. We're almost 150 years on from the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Um, it's amazing how that's how that's working out. Uh, but certainly, as, as Clyde Wilson once told me, about every you know 50 years, uh, the uh, the Yankees get a little restless, and that's exactly what's happening here. So I mean, you look at the 1860s, and you got the progressive era with Wilson in the 19 teens. Uh, you got the 1960s, uh, of course. Then you have uh, this particular period of time, another another phase of Reconstruction. And so in this particular phase of Reconstruction, one thing that's not happening is we're not seeing a radical restructuring of the American economy because that's already taken place. I mean, if you look at Reconstruction for what it was, it wasn't just uh, an, an effort to reconstruct the South. It was an effort to recreate America. And that happened, of course, quite substantially with uh, the economy of the United States. I mean, we, we have the adoption of the Hamiltonian economic system. So we have a reconstruction in that particular way. Uh, but that's been fully completed. I mean, now that we have the complete restructuring of the American economy, the Federal Reserve, we have the stock market more important than the cotton price in the South. I mean, we have the, the movement of so many people from the Northeast into the South, into the Southwest, Florida, Texas. Um, this is certainly th that economic transformation has been completed. So now what we're looking at, you know, are we having a political reconstruction? Well, certainly. And I think the piece by uh, Ronnie Kennedy on Monday uh, is... Um, it hits this. I mean, it hits on this. And, and of course, uh, Don Livingston's piece before we left for the break certainly does the same thing. The culture war continues. And this is exactly what Ronnie Kennedy is pointing out here, that we are in a culture war. Now, in that piece by Don Livingston, which I talked about in the last podcast for 2019, uh, he mentioned that the Anti-Deformation League, uh, Anti-Islamic Deformation League, I guess is what it is, um, has, I think that's what it's called. Anyways, one of these crazy left-wing think tanks has decided that uh, Google and other places, Amazon, more Amazon, needs to stop selling The South Was Right. So Ronnie Kennedy, one of the authors of The South Is Right, this guy, uh, the left just despises him. And it's because he makes a lot of sense. And he points out in this particular piece, the, the left's march through Southern institutions that much of what we're seeing today, again, is if you look at it historically, this is another aspect of Reconstruction. It's a cultural Reconstruction. He points back to cultural Marxism, which is what's going on here. And he illustrates that no matter how much money we spend on education, of course, education gets worse. And that's by design, because essentially what we have today is indoctrination, not education. Because you don't have two sides. I mean, we don't let people decide. We don't let people say, well, yeah, there's this side and there's this side. And which side makes more sense? No. If you don't agree with the left's version of society and what they want as society, well, then they want to press criminal charges against you. I mean, this is coming. You have university professors who are looking, as he points out, for microaggressions on their students. And if you are commit a microaggression, whatever that is, you could say the wrong thing in class. That's a microaggression against some uh, particular group of people and, well, minority group of people. I mean, that they deem a minority group. And you need to be punished. The university might need to punish you or maybe even criminal charges leveled against you. 
So this is where we are in 2019 and 2020. It's certainly another part of Reconstruction. And he points out all the things that are going on. Look, Confederate monuments, the assault on Confederate monuments, that's just that's the low-hanging fruit. Once you get rid of those, you have to go after a traditional American other ways. It's the founding generation, or as he points out, it's McKinley. William McKinley. Or Christopher Columbus. Or Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I mean, you, you take your pick of somebody they're going to go after because American history can't start until the 1970s. It can't start until all the bad people have been purged and all the people they consider to be agreeable are elevated to some particular status of reverence in American society. And that's, of course, what this culture war is all about. It's another form of reconstruction. It's now a thorough reconstruction that you have to be indoctrinated and assimilated. You know, it's, it's quite ironic that the leftist uh, writer and television producer, or at least, uh, you know, of Star Trek, Ray Bradbury, uh, with the Borg, you will be assimilated. And if you're into science fiction, I mean, if you if you watch Star Trek, um, and it's a very leftist show, but it's it's amazing that they don't even understand the irony of everything they're doing, that they are the ones who are trying to assimilate. You have the Borg, which are this, they fly around these cube ships, right? And they they force everyone to be like them. And the American Feder- or the the, the um, Americans, and of course, you know, the World Federation, the, the Federation of Planets is resisting the Borg, resisting the Borg, assimilating everyone. But what they are really trying to do is assimilate everyone to their version of cultural imperialism and cultural Marxism. So uh, the, the irony is just tremendous. But I mean, this is what we're facing, and this is what I think Ronnie Kennedy does a very nice job pointing out. You have all these things that are leftist crusades, and they're using the education system, not just the lower grades, not just K through 12, but also the university system, to ensure that these values are pumped into the brains of these of these students, young minds of mush, whether they're five years old or 18 years old. We know that 18 year old students often act like five years old, five year olds now. But we have to ensure that these young minds of mush are taught these platitudes, this hyperbole, all these things that you hear on social media. Well, I mean, uh, as Kennedy points out, milk is racist. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Um, we saw it over the, the, the break uh, when we weren't here with the Army-Navy game and some of the uh, some of the cadets making the OK sign. So that was, oh my gosh, we've just had all these racist cadets. I mean, when does OK become racist? But this is where, <laughs> this is how stupid this stuff is. But it's certainly, um, it, it's, this is what we have in the current reconstruction of America. Um, and if you deviate from that, well, you are now going to be assimilated, indoctrinated, re-educated, or punished. Um, the, the piece on, on, uh, on Thursdays, uh, Clyde Wilson's next installment in the Southerner's Movie Guide, is, I think is, this all ties together. If you look at the movies that he, that he talks about in this particular piece, and he's gotten to the war, he leads off with Gone with the Wind. And, of course, Gone with the Wind could not be made today. Now, of course, it is the highest grossing film adjusted for inflation of all time. Think about that. A Gone with the Wind is the most important, in terms of ticket receipts, film 
of all time in American history, surpassing all of the current blockbuster films, all the leftist films that have been produced, all the superhero flicks and all these things. It is the highest Star Wars science fiction. It is the highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation. Gone with the wind. And this film could not be made today, but it shows. I mean, there are still people and a lot of people that love Gone with the Wind. But the left would love to get rid of this film. And um, one of our one of our contributors, uh, Robin Lattimore, uh, posted uh, on his social media account uh, back in the '80s. He went to one of the it went to the 50th anniversary of, of 1989 of Gone with the Wind, and he put pictures up for that. I found that to be fascinating. Here he is. The 1980s, you couldn't get away with doing this. I mean, this is 30. I highly doubt in about 20 years there's going to be a hundredth anniversary of Gone with the Wind. In fact, by that point, I'm sure the left would hope that it wouldn't even be you know, available anymore, anywhere. But just 30 years ago, you had uh, the 50th anniversary of Gone with the Wind. So we're at 80, 80 years now, and. Um, I don't think you could get away with this today. Making the movie, having a having a, a an event where I mean, people lined up to get autographs from these actors, including, of course, the African-American actors who participated in the film. There was nobody... Those actors weren't complaining about anything. The people who were participating in these events weren't saying, well, we're going to get the... This is, we're going to get these autographs, but not these autographs. I mean, it's, this is just how stupid all this stuff really is. Um, but the other films that he points out are Gettysburg and Gods and Generals, which, um, again, I, I don't know if you could make... Gods and Generals came out in uh, 2003, but even now, close to 20 years later, I'm not so certain you can make this film with any major funding. And, of course, Ron Maxwell, who produced these films, has been trying to get funding for some other things and fails. Hollywood is not on board with producing films that show the South in any type of favorable light. I mean, you can do, if you want to do a film where it's anti-Southern, you can get money for that all day long. And this is where uh, Ricky Gervais um, just lambasted the Hollywood elite the other day, which was absolutely hilarious. These people were so uncomfortable, but he's picking on all of them. He's saying, you know, if he, one of the best jokes, you know, if ISIS created a streaming service, these people would, would sign up for it. Um, and, I mean, it's hilarious because they would. I mean, they're all hypocrite, woke people. They just And uh, to continually uh, rail against the South is one of the things they like to do. But a lot of the films he lists are older films. One of the films that he lists that I love is Ride with the Devil. It's one of the best films of the 20th century, uh, 1999. So good. And it has major Hollywood actors in it. Again, I don't know if, if you could make this film 20 years later. I mean, 1999, 20, it's 20 years old. Um, I don't know if Ang Lee could get away with this. I don't know if Tobey Maguire or Jewel or Jeffrey Wright or... Um, any of the people that starred in that particular film could get away with making this film today because it's just too politically incorrect. In fact, when it even came out in 1999, it was blacklisted. You couldn't watch it in major theaters because of the use of language, which was, uh, it was period language, 
But um, and it had a black Confederate in it. Jeffrey Wright played a black Confederate. I'm not so certain that you could get away with this particular uh, film today in the current political climate. You could barely get away with it in 1999. I remember I watched it in kind of a little artsy theater in Columbia, South Carolina, because that's the only place you could go see it when it came out. Um, and it's it's a fantastic film. Um, Outlaw Josie Wales and the and um, you know some of these others that uh, you know Clint Eastwood makes Richard Jewell, which we talked about on just a recent uh, episode, um, and it doesn't do well at the box office. Not because it's not a good film, but I mean, again, this thing is kind of being uh, you know blacklisted. Um, it's very critical of the left. It's very critical of uh, this uh, current political climate and what those people did to Richard Jewell, this Confederate flag waving redneck. Uh, that's how he was portrayed in, in the 1990s. So um, I love this piece, and he's going to have more. We've got part five coming up in another week, and then I'm sure there'll be a part six and part seven. This was all intended to be put into a book, but he said, you know, just put it on the website. These are things. People need to read these, read this stuff, and see these films, and avoid the ones that I tell you to avoid. So it's a great, uh, great another uh, contribution to that. Uh, we also had a great piece on Friday, Lincoln versus Trump. And this was also a big, big news for a little while uh, that uh, a majority of Republicans said that Donald Trump is a better president than Abraham Lincoln. And uh, then in the impeachment proceedings, uh, one of the Republican congressmen asked Jonathan Turley, the uh, libertarian, left, lib- I mean, sort of left libertarian uh, lawyer uh, who was making the case against impeachment. Hey, if the Democrats are going to uh, say this is an impeachable offense, couldn't we have impeach, impeached all these presidents? Now, number one, I would agree with all of that. In fact, it's not very flimsy. I mean, the, the presidents he lists all should have been impeached. But, of course, his knife to the, to the chest, supposedly, was his insistence that, well, insistence that if, well, if you use this line of reasoning, then even Abraham Lincoln could have impeached. And it was like, oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, Abraham Lincoln no way should have been impeached. But... Of course, as J.L. Bennett points out, well, maybe he should have been impeached. I mean, if you if you look at what Lincoln did, if you look at the fact that he waged war on the South, the unconstitutional actions, the things that happened, the way that he suppressed civil liberties and uh, abused power, well, maybe Lincoln should have been impeached. Maybe this is not really a, a strange question. Maybe it's an accurate question that uh, people don't ask enough of. And so when you look at this issue of Lincoln v. Trump and, and impeaching Trump compared to Lincoln, uh, as, as uh, Bennett points out at the end, maybe uh, there's a stronger case for the impeachment of Lincoln than there is for Trump. Now, of course, this was written before Trump's use of drone strikes in, in the Middle East, but uh, certainly Trump has never, never killed a million Americans. In fact, I mean, you could argue that even in that particular case, He's trying to defend Americans. I mean, we can make, you know, well, is this, is this a good move or a bad move? Is it constitutional or not? But in his mind, he's doing this to protect Americans. Lincoln was killing Americans. I mean, a million of them. So which one was more dangerous? Which one was more destructive to America, Lincoln or Trump? And these are I mean, very strong questions to ask. Of course, the establishment will say, oh, my gosh, how can you say this about Abraham Lincoln? The guy is a, I mean, look, he's got a, he's got a temple in Washington, D.C., a temple. This guy is above reproach. You can't say anything negative about Abraham Lincoln. And if you do, as Mel Bradford did, well, you're not going to get a job in the federal government. 
Uh, you're not going to get a main uh, establishment academic position. Now, I will say this, the 1619 Project laid into Abraham Lincoln, and I think effectively did so, and I'm, I'm very critical of the 1619 Project. I have a piece coming out about that in the in an upcoming issue of, uh, of Chronicles magazine. But um, the, the one thing they were correct about, I mean, is look, is, is criticizing Lincoln. Lincoln was not a very good guy in, in, uh, in terms of, it, it, there's this myth of Lincoln, and then there's the reality of Lincoln and what Lincoln was. And when you look at Lincoln's positions on, say, colonization, slavery, race, I mean, he was a man of his time. And uh, he might have been anti-slavery, but he certainly wasn't. He was in favor of colonization. He's in favor of, he's, he's making very racist statements. And the 1619 Project points that out and says, you know, here you go. But, of course, the, uh, the mainstream academics rally around Abraham Lincoln and said, no, 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 you can't say that about Lincoln. I mean, so Lincoln is the one figure in American history. You can, you can bash George Washington because he's a, he's a cavalier southerner. You can bash Thomas Jefferson. But there are certain individuals you cannot, and one of those is Abraham Lincoln. And one of the reasons that we do what we do at the Institute is try to correct that particular position on Lincoln. I mean, look, Lincoln was and is highly problematic for American identity and American history. Um, another one that you really, I mean, you can, you can criticize, in a way, Alexander Hamilton, but in a way you can't because he is now, because of the Broadway hit musical Hamilton, Again, one of these individuals, he's just a leftist. He's, uh, he's just an immigrant. Um, he's ab above reproach. I mean, you can say he did some, had some moral failings, but uh, this guy was so important for America, how can you bash Alexander Hamilton? So Conservative Inc. is certainly on board with maintaining the myth of Lincoln, myth of Hamilton. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly something that uh, to watch. Now, I know Tom DiLorenzo has a new book coming out, I believe, on Abraham Lincoln, another one. Um, and so that'll be good. We'll watch for that. Uh, again, I'm sure very critical of Lincoln. Um, but the last piece of the week is a piece on, uh, it's a book review. It's uh, titled Lee versus McClellan, and it's about, uh, it's entitled The First Campaign, published by Regnery in 2010 by Clayton Newell. Um, this particular review is by uh, John Watley. And he talks about how at the beginning of the war, Lee was simply advised in an advisory position. He, um, and uh, McClellan was on, had boots on the ground. And maybe if Lee had been involved in Virginia, in the western part of Virginia, things might have been different. Um, the next week, we're having a review that... Goes over, goes through a Bone Kemper book, uh, where it's Grant versus Lee, and of course the modern way to look at Lee is that he was this horrible guy, brutal slave owner, and a very bad general. I mean, this is this is how. And Bone Kemper is a conservative, right? I mean, Bone Kemper is it's a regnery book. Bone Kemper is a conservative, so you have conservative ink lining up against Lee. You've got the left lining up against Lee. It's what they all want to do. I mean, even conservative ink is lining up for this left's long march through through Southern institutions, they're on board with all of this stuff in a lot of ways. I mean, it's they're on board with the cultural reconstruction of the South because the South is this cultural block um, to this American identity, which is leftist. I mean, that's we, we can't get around the fact that that's what it is. 
So one of the reasons why, I mean, you know, wrap up, you know, you have this, this, and as as Watley says, look, if if Lee had just been allowed to be in the field, maybe some of these things go differently in uh, in 1861. But of course, he was advisory at that point. He he, he wasn't. So. Um, one of the things that we do at the Institute and we try to do, of course, is provide another perspective, uh, both for the left and the right. I mean, the, the one thing they're unified in is their attack on the South, for the most part. I mean, the establishment has decided that the South is the, is the evil other in American society and must be remade. Um, and they're open about this. They're open about this. So we exist at the Institute to try to provide the other side of this and to say, look, there's something valuable about the Southern tradition. If you get rid of the South, you're getting rid of the backbone of American conservatism. In many ways, the backbone of America. I mean, I've said it before on this particular podcast. I've said it many times. The South is and was America. You look at the earliest, what we, what we identify as American before 1861, is predominantly Southern. I mean, there's no doubt about it. What we recognize is, is genuinely American, even to this day, culturally. What we, what we like about traditional America is predominantly Southern. doesn't mean there's not Northern elements to it. I mean, I, I wouldn't make that claim. And, of course, even um, some of the agrarians loved New England. They loved parts of the traditional culture of New England because it was uniquely New England. And so they said, you know, there's something to this New England. We, we just think that that's... That's just America now, but it's not. It's New England, and there's the South, which was much more American. So um, this is what we do here, and we try to point out the distinctiveness of the South, the importance of the South and the Southern tradition in America, and what made America and what makes America great is certainly this Southern tradition. And the left knows it, which is why they're trying to get rid of it, and the establishment conservatives are just the useful idiots in this process. They are the collaborators. They're the Girondists who eventually be guillotined, right? Uh, because they've participated in the revolution and just not radical enough. All right, so I hope you enjoyed uh, this week in Review at the Abbey of Institute. Until next time, good day. Good day.